0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash SlashFilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to SlashFilm Daily for Friday, September 25th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler and talking about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's podcast by SlashFilm managing editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers White Tran Bowie.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: And Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, so as you can probably tell, Peter is not here today, but the show must go on. So let's just dive into what we've been doing. Jacob, what have you been doing?
2: I'm dealing with loneliness for the first time in years. My wife made the decision to go visit family in the middle of the pandemic, which means um, two weeks of quarantine when she gets there, followed by two weeks of actual, you know, seeing her family. And I don't her. I her. It was my idea for her to do, do the whole month so she can actually see them because she really wanted to. But it means that I am alone with... Two dogs and two cats for literally an entire month. In the middle of a time where I can't see my friends, regularly really can't leave the house to do anything fun, so I'm dealing with weird crippling loneliness. And two dogs were very needy and possibly barking in the background of this podcast right now. <laughs> so, uh, I guess
0: was there uh, no feasible way for you to go with her and continue working?
2: Let me put it this way: it. Her family's in Hawaii. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, Hawaii laws uh, stipulate that she has to quarantine for two weeks in the apartment where her sister and her brother in law live. So, it was a matter of even if I could go, the time zone difference plus quarantining in an apartment with three other people and their uh, young toddler it just sounded like a, a bad time for everybody involved. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, here I am, uh, you know, being alone for the first time in a decade it's very it's a very unusual feeling once you get used to having someone around at all times it is very strange and surreal to suddenly not have that
0: yeah i imagine a lot of people are going through that right now who have um or have been, you know, for for this year, basically, like people who have always who have lived alone, but, you know, used to go into an office and actually, like, you know, interact with people on a day to day basis. For us, it's a bit different, because we've been working from from home for so long, even before the pandemic hit. But I, I imagine that, uh Jacob, you should take some comfort in knowing that you're not alone in feeling alone in these times.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to fill the time I, I'm working on the podcast with HT, Trekking Through Time and Space, now available on iTunes, Spotify, and all your usual suspects. You should check that out. And I'm working on another top secret project with some slash film folks as well that I can't talk about yet. Ooh, sweet. Nice tease. Yeah. Uh, you have here that,
0: that you've been um, dancing around with the idea of, uh, of joining the gig economy, Jacob?
2: What's yes, going on there? Is, I've already put my toe in it. Uh, With all my evenings completely free, I can either sit down and be sad and lonely and try to watch movies, which, you know, not not a bad thing to do, or I can keep myself active and try to earn a little bit of extra money. So I signed up for DoorDash and I spent all last night delivering food all around so, the city of Austin.
0: <laughs> is this the first time that you've done anything like this with the I guess in, in the you know in the Uber era?
2: Uh absolutely yes. I used to work retail. I worked at Target for years and years and years and years before I was, you know, a full-time writer. I was even writing freelance for multiple sites while working at Target over a decade ago. So I'm I'm used to being in a service industry. However, this is my first time delivering. It's the first time working in the gig economy, you know, app-driven world. And it's strange because I don't regret doing this at all so far I, i've done two nights so far i made actually really good money <laughs> delivering uh pandemic food to people in their homes dropping off their porch and ringing the doorbell and walking away so i don't feel i feel i feel reasonably safe in since, since i'm not you know seeing people face to face most of the time but it's it's very odd because they've video gamified uh service industry work it's very much a you have one minute to take this you know job we're offering you all your stats are tracked you're High score, aka the money you've made, it's tracked at all times. There are special, you know, achievements you can get, like deliver four deliveries during this window of the night or morning and get an extra fifteen dollars. It is wild how much it feels like an addictive video game, huh. and how my adrenaline is pumping while I am fucking delivering food. Like I am at, che- at Cheesecake Factory, and a second thing comes up saying there is an additional Cheesecake Factory order here. If you if you want to pick it up, it's an extra twelve bucks. I am like hell yeah, give me, I'll deliver more Cheesecake Factory. I'll, I'll do it right here, right now. Give, make the numbers get bigger. And, you know, like any millennial, I have enough, I have credit card debt. I'm not, I'm not underwater. I'm not in a bad position, but I have enough that if I can make a thousand dollars door dashing this month, which I could do based on the, my first two sessions, then that's a nice chunk of a credit card. I'm not regretting it. However, for those of you who do this full-time and are dealing with this adrenaline stress and other people's like terrible directions at their apartments, <laughs> um, uh, I, I, my hat's off to you. I, I, I will never... I will never give you one star ever again. Not, not that I made a habit of that, but I'll, um, after realizing what dashers have to go through f- for other people, I am very, very keenly aware of what I <laughs> will do to treat other people. Cause it's like, it's like, how do they expect us to find your apartment when it's at night in an unlit complex in Building 6, Apartment 2030. Why is Apartment 2030 in Building 6, Ben? Why? <laughs> I could not tell you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's strange. And, you know, so if you do use DoorDash or Uber Eats, please go to the notes section if you live in an apartment and give some directions to your dasher. So I we'll, won't we'll have to call you and say, hey, please give me better directions to your place because, quite frankly, if you don't have those in your, in your description, you are making it very hard. Making making your delivery take longer. So that's after two sessions of DoorDash. I'm an expert. Go do that. <laughs> all right.
0: Well, uh, yeah. Maybe you can sort of keep us posted as the month goes on, and, and uh, tell us any crazy stories that happen along the way. Because it sounds like a, an interesting potential side gig for you. So, yeah.
3: and uh, you know, l- right.
2: l- listen, listen to podcasts and audiobooks, Ben. I'm making my own hours. So credit card at. Goodbye. <laughs> <So. Yeah. laughs> all right, I, I admire the uh,
0: the hustle, the grit that that truly is a, a millennial. Um, <laughs> you know, a, a uh, uh, what would you call that? Like a a central focus of of all millennials. But um, and and certainly it sounds like you'll be having plenty of time to listen to some good stuff anyway. So maybe you can talk about that on the podcast too. Um, it also seems like, Jacob, you've had some time to read some stuff too. So you're the only one in the what we've been reading section.
2: What have you been reading lately? Oh goodness, I have to talk again already? Okay, <laughs> people are so tired of me and my voice. I read uh, Caddyshack, the making of a Hollywood Cinderella story by Chris uh, Chris Nashawaddy, the uh, Entertainment Weekly writer. And I, re- I read this on a whim. Because I heard the making of Caddyshack's 1980 comedy was crazy, and the book delivers. It is indeed a very unbridled production. And I guess the best thing I see about this book is that I don't like Caddyshack. I don't think it's very funny. I have no love for that film. But this book is fantastic. And I realized it was fantastic when, in order to explain Caddyshack, in order to explain how this strange golf comedy got made in 1980, they have to explain Saturday Night Live, and they have to explain National Lampoon, and they have to explain... Harvard Lampoon. That's explaining a second city and SCTV. And it ends up being that Caddyshack is the culmination of a decade of of comedic evolution. All the people involved in this movie, in order to understand how they got here is to, in order to appreciate it, you have to understand the the trajectory of comedy from 1968 to 1979. And that blew me away. Uh, I was really bowled over by how much it managed to encapsulate what comedy meant at the time and how Caddyshack represented it even though i don't like the film uh, brad i think you in particular would really really dig this book have you read this
4: no i i have this actually and um i have like a couple amazon wish lists of like things that i want to buy at some point or like you know ask for for christmas or something and that's one of the books that i, I haven't bit the bullet on buying yet
2: yeah you, you'd really like it i recommend anybody if, if you're interested at all in how comedy changed in the 70s even if you don't like caddyshack this is a great book and Uh, it will definitely color your opinion on certain people. Uh, I walked away from this book very impressed by Harold Ramis and terrified of Bill Murray. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Uh, Real quick, Jacob, before we move on from
0: this topic, I also have heard that the making of this movie was really insane. And I think one of the big sort of, um, I don't know, like, it's not an urban legend, because I think it's actually true. Facts, I guess, uh, sort of pieces of wisdom floating around about the making of this film is that um Chevy Chase and and Bill Murray really really clashed on the movie and and their styles of comedy and and huge uh, personalities were like so uh, different and and big and, um, you know, going head to head at all times that uh, it seemed to be a little tense uh, behind the scenes. I don't know really any of the details about anything that happened. Is there, I guess, maybe without giving away anything big, if there are any like big reveals or anything in the book, but um, I, I assume they dove into that a little bit. Uh, do you have any um, small stories you could share about that?
2: Interestingly, there is The story of Bill Murray and Chevy Chase goes back to SNL when they got into a fist fight during season two, when Chevy Chase came back to guest star and Bill Murray was essentially goaded into a fist fight by his co-stars, who all were resentful of Chevy Chase, which features my all-time favorite Bill Murray moment uh, off screen, which is where during the fist fight, everybody pulls them back and Bill Murray, in the heat of anger, screams at Chevy Chase, medium talent, which is... (laughs) uh, But apparently, everybody was very worried about this on set, that they would clash, and they have one big scene in Caddyshack that is uh mostly improvised between Bill Murray and Chevy Chase and everyone's on pins and needles and it turns out that ended up being sort of an exorcism for the two of them as they on screen worked out their differences in character in a way that they actually buried the hatchet on screen and, and it's a scene that's in the film. Huh, very cool. I had not heard that. All right. Well, that, the book is called Caddyshack: The Making of a Hollywood
0: Cinderella Story, and it is about uh, it is out right now. Uh, let's dive into what we've been watching. Brad, you and I watched a documentary called Console Wars. I want to hear what you thought about this, and then I'll, I'll chime in with my thoughts afterwards.
4: Sure. Um, So this is based on a book uh, by Blake J. Harris. Um, It's about the battle between Sega and Nintendo for home video game console supremacy. Uh, Sega came in on the scene in 1989 and started to give Nintendo a run for their money after they dominated the market for around five years and really just became complacent and comfortable, uh, essentially monopolizing the home video game uh, world after it came crashing down uh, largely thanks to Atari and some pretty bad games uh, in the early 80s. And so this documentary chronicles that that battle between Sega and Nintendo by talking to uh, the executives at both companies and digging into uh, their tactics as far as how they fought each other, how Sega um, had a, a you know very distinct strategy as far as how they wanted to take down Nintendo. And uh, it's extremely entertaining, very fascinating. This is a lot of stuff that you don't normally hear about the video game industry. Um, it, if you watched Netflix's High Score, which is another video game documentary that we talked about uh, previously, you'll know some of the finer points because that series did cover this big part of video game history. And the style of this documentary is similar too. It uses uh, like uh, video game style graphics to create dramatizations of scenes and moments and anecdotes described by these executives. Uh, it has tons of vintage commercial footage and stuff places from like game conventions and things like that it's really fun to actually see some of the quick video game commercial clips because you'll spot people like paul rudd and ethan suplee that started them uh back in the early 90s um but it's it's still a great um you know coverage of of this story i um it digs deep into it it gets into a lot more details than high score could have because high score was a lot more of a broad coverage of of video games. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's entertaining, it's fascinating. And so if, if you ever, you know, had a video game system and grew up with Nintendo and Sega, then you'll, uh, you'll definitely get a kick out of this one.
0: I feel very similarly. Uh, I, I also really, really loved the, um, you know, the, the footage from the era, all that stuff from, you know, like, uh, E3 and like the video game conventions and stuff like that, like seeing, you know, those, um, that, yeah that sort of vintage footage uh and like all those commercials and stuff like some of them actually like brought me back to my own childhood and be like man i i have not thought about this one particular sega commercial since it was like in heavy rotation in you know 1997 or whatever but um but <laughs> seeing it now it just sort of like you know sucked me back into uh into that that particular time in my life um because I was a, a Sega kid growing up, uh, all my friends had Nintendo, and my um, family got a Sega, and so that was a it, it was it was a weird time, you know. Like it, you, it was very um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess there is a rivalry between like Xbox and PlayStation now, but it doesn't feel as um, as much, quite as much of a of a like all defining kind of thing that oh, the Sega man. versus you Nintendo to, thing. You need to
2: go on some video game forums. It is uglier than ever.
0: Okay. All right. Well, yeah. It's meaner right. now. I, I, it,
2: it's just meaner. It's not. As, it's a <laughs> concert wars. Nineties scene fun. Modern day concert wars artist Ugly, gross, grown men yelling at each other on internet forums. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I guess that's a, a pretty
0: um, consistent thing that you'll find almost anywhere on the internet. But I don't know. It, it seems like, and and maybe I should not be bringing this up because, like Jacob says, I I'm, I do not frequent modern day forums, and I don't. I guess I don't have a, as full a grasp on the current uh, war as as I I might. But um, it seems like to me that back in the day and, and Brad, this sort of like, they talk about this in the documentary a little bit, like it's almost like a, a full personality kind of thing. Like, like their Sega is like all about attitude, right? Like they talk about that in the doc and Nintendo is like much more, um, I don't know. It was like the Disney of the time, like sort of a family friendly kind of vibe. So it seems like buying this one system was more about like crafting, uh, like like uh, explaining who you were to the world. Did you
4: get that sense from this documentary a little bit? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I guess so. Because like, there's 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 a certain identity that comes with it, especially with the way that like Sega advertised itself. But I don't know. For me, as a kid, like I. I just I wanted both systems, you know, and I, I only ever I had the original Nintendo and then I had a Sega. I never had a Super Nintendo. And so for me, I've never really had much as, as far as like a an identity where I'm like, no, I'm a, I'm a Sega kid or I'm a Nintendo kid. But I, I can definitely see like how that would, would come about during that time.
0: Yeah. Uh, so Console Wars is available on CBS All Access right now. So if you want to watch that, uh, Brad and I both recommend it. Okay. For me, I watched all of Pen15 season two. This is the show that is on Hulu. It's a Hulu original comedy. Um, It is created or co-created by Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle, who are the stars of the show. Uh, Sam um, Ziebelman, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, is also the co-creator. But uh, Maya and Anna are the stars of the show and they are like 30 something years old and they play, you know, like 14 year olds and they are basically in, I think they're in eighth grade. So yeah, what is that? 14, 15 year olds. And the rest of the cast around them is comprised of people who are actually, you know, 14 or 15 years old. Um, So it's sort of uh, the first season, I think made it more um, like that. The distinction between them, you know, these, the, clearly adults, uh, you know, acting with clearly children was a little bit more um, obvious in the first season. I think in season two, it's like they're so good at playing these middle school versions of themselves that you almost forget that they are (laughs) as old as they are in real life they they disappear so perfectly into these versions that um that the the entire like conceit of the show almost goes out the window like the gimmick of the show uh begins to fade and then so what that means is the story elements actually rise to the top and i think the story of pen 15 season two is um a little bit better than the first season, although not quite as funny. So it it's a really well rounded show in that regard. It's it's um, more dramatic, but I think if you you know the entire arc of the show thus far, the these two seasons are um, they give you a, a really good breadth of stuff. Like the, I mean, it's it's uh, early two thousands like late nineties, um, you know, nostalgia porn kind of thing where they all of the the style and the props and the clothes and everything are very, um, you know, it, it sort of whisks you right back into that world. Uh, and that was around the time that I was, you know, I'm about the same age as these creators. So it, it's a very, um, it's like watching a ladybird or something for people who, you know, uh, or, or any high school movie, when, when that period aligns with the period that you were in high school, it's a very, um, it's a sweet spot, you know, as a viewer. So, uh, the show, I guess maybe might work a little bit better for me than other people in that regard. But I really think it's, it's almost like a universal experience, even though it takes place in like, like I said, the late nineties or, or the year 2000 or something. Um, But uh, man, yeah, I just, I I don't want to get too much into the specifics or anything, but I I was just very impressed with the drama of Pen15 season two. Um, Has anybody else here seen the show or, or, you know, if not the second season, then any of the first season or am I the only one?
1: I haven't. It's on my list, but I just want to say that Maya Erskine, Erskine, um, I dressed exactly like her in middle school. So, (laughs) you know, authenticity at least.
0: Yeah, I think you would really like the show, HD. I mean, everybody, uh, everybody on this ep- on this podcast would, um, because like I said, there's there's so much of that, like specificity in the comedy. And then um, it, it really transitions very well into it's, it's sort of like um, it reminded me a little bit of Booksmart, uh, Booksmart, because it's sort of about these two best friends and like the the. Uh, the dependence that they have on each other and then like the finding independence within that and, and still their own identities with, you know, as almost this unit that's like joined at the hip um, and unpregnant, which I talked about on uh, last week's water cooler sort of gets in this uh, gets at that a little bit too. this idea of like female friendships at this certain age um, where everybody is very, where emotions are, are extremely heightened Um, I just think this show does a really, really great job. So that's pen 15. Uh, the first two seasons are streaming on Hulu right now. And then I just wanted to briefly mention that I've been watching Archer. Um, Archer has finally come back on, uh, I think it's on FXX. Uh, and I think you can watch it on Hulu, like a, a, day or two later um, with the whole FX on Hulu initiative that they have. But uh, this is like the, I think, 11th season of Archer, which is kind of crazy to think about. It's been on since 2009 or something. Um, And for the past three years, uh, the character of Archer, who's like the world's greatest super spy kind of asshole character, has been in a coma. So each of the past three seasons have been um, basically like fever dreams of his where... Uh, one of them was like a, a 1940s noir movie where he was like a detective, um, pl- you know, uh, going on this season long, uh, mystery mission. Another one was like a space themed thing where it was set in the far future. And it was like alien and there were crazy science fiction concepts, um, explored throughout the series, um, or through the, the season. And this one, he finally wakes up from the. Coma, so it's it's back to that old spy dynamic, and it's about how the character of Archer fits into a world where that has moved on without him um, in the in the past three years. So, um, you know, it, it's not like it's not a show that's going to change your life, but if you're looking for like a fun a comedy that has a lot of uh, jokes per minute, uh, I would recommend watching and, and catching up with Archer if you guys have not seen it. So uh, like I said, the new episodes are on FXX and um, you can check it out. Uh, the whole se- uh, series right now is streaming on Hulu.
2: What season number Jacob, has that been? Is it like season I, I think 12? it's
0: season 11, okay. I think
2: um, is the the current season. I used to watch it every week. I was I was like maybe four seasons. It was the show I did not miss and I, I trail off and I was too much left yeah i mean it's it's an easy one to sort of chip through especially now jacob
0: if you're like bored at home you know for for this month while your wife is not around um because the episodes there's the seasons are only you know 10 to 13 episodes long and they're only half hour episodes so it's not like a huge ask in terms of time it's just there are a lot of seasons now but um (laughs) it's a very enjoyable show it's it's really dumb like dumb humor a lot uh but um uh, I enjoy it. So anyway, that's Archer. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching?
2: I haven't talked about The Boys Season 2 yet on this podcast. I think The Boys Season 2 is terrific. It is. It captures what made the best episodes of Season 1 work for me. and hits the ground running. Every episode of Season 2 has been as good as the best of Season 1. And I know this is a controversial show on this podcast because uh, Chris and I disagree very strongly about this show in, in, in a way that maybe the most I disagree with, with him about anything <laughs> in our time together working on slash film. But I think season two of of The Boys is the kind of angry, vicious, funny, satiric wildness that we need right now. It is targeting all the right targets and using superheroes to stand in for, you know, all of our grievances against celebrity, government, military, corporate corporation. It manages to blend it all in a way that makes thematic sense, the way that feels modern. And as someone who read a lot of the comic before it was before I decided to stop because it was bad and I shouldn't have started in the first place, it makes so many smart adaptation choices. Like for example, there's a character in the comic who's literally a beefy German guy with a swastika on his chest. who's a Nazi superhero in this one, that character has been adapted to be a young, attractive woman with a cool haircut, who's social, social media savvy and uh, hides her white supremacist, white supremacist leanings in the idea of rallying against PC culture. And it ends up being this really chilling villain. And in a show full of chilling characters, she is very upsetting to watch in a way that feels incredibly modern. And I can't wait for the show to take her down uh, as it does all of its great villains. So that's the boys season two. It airs, well, it arrives every new episode on Friday. It's a little over halfway through the season now. And I can't believe it's almost over. I guess it's, oh, my goodness. Yeah, two episodes left now. Uh, and uh, I will be watching it tonight. We're going to end this podcast, finish work, and we're going to watch the boys.
0: Uh, Jacob, real quick, would you call The Boys an ugly show? Not from a, uh, a visual perspective, but just like its worldview—is is this a show that like will
2: make you feel like scum after watching it? This is this is where Chris and I disagree. Chris uh, and Chris can jump in if he wants to. The first season made Chris feel bad. <laughs> he's talked about this before on the show and in his review on the site, and he's not watching season two for that reason. But for me, I think. The the show is about people in a bad world trying to escape that bad world, trying to destroy that bad world, and I leave the show each week feeling angry but ready to fight, as opposed to feeling brung down and brought down by it. I mean, people are are completely welcome to have a different reaction to it, but I I never feel like I need to take a shower after watching it, as it, bloody and <laughs> as gross as it can be, because it is an incredibly <laughs> violent show full of nastiness. I think it's always funny enough and always just hopeful enough through a few key characters to keep the light shining. Chris, do you have no interest in in checking out season two? Uh,
3: no, I I, I can't say I do. It's just <laughs> it's not it's not for me, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, not everything yeah. has to be for me.
0: For sure, uh, Jacob, are you excited about the spinoff that they just announced of the
2: boys? No, it sounds like the the, the worst part of the boys. Uh, oh honestly. no! <laughs> I mean, uh, the comic. Is, the worst part of the comic is that. Garth Ennis, the writer, whose work I have liked before, leans very heavily on they are superheroes, but they're perverts. He leans on that all the time. Whereas the TV show leans on that maybe once or twice every so often. And setting up a spinoff where it's a bunch of young sexy superheroes in college with hijinks sounds like the worst parts of that comic being brought to life. You know, Mm -hmm. they are superheroes, but they're going to have sex all the time. I'm like, no, no. Superheroes in the show are very much representations. Everything is wrong with, you know, the world and the people who are fighting against that. So I don't think I need to watch a show about those people. Fair enough. Uh, What else have you been watching, Jacob? I fell into a guy's grocery games hole, Ben. Uh, I have (laughs) no idea what that is. Can you please explain? This is Guy Fieri's game show on Food Network, Ben Pearson. Uh, Oh. I don't know where the culture stands on Guy Fieri right now. I used to hate his guts. Now I realized that there are far worse people than a guy with a brash attitude and a bad haircut. So... I don't watch his main show where he goes around looking for diners, uh, drive-ins, and dives, as it's called. But he makes for a surprisingly adequate and positive game show host on this really, really silly game show where chefs are called in to a set that's a giant grocery store, so it's part supermarket sweep. But instead of just running the aisles, grabbing stuff, you have to do challenges like make an Italian feast, but only seven items or less, or go make this particular item, but you only spend $12, or you only shop in aisles three and four. And it ends up being this really clever thing we have to watch chefs cook their way out of really interesting problems and as somebody who has grown to begrudgingly not hate guy Fieri, i think he's just just a guy who's into his own thing and is apparently a good dude in real life so i can't be mad at him because being a good dude in real life is what matters right <laughs> um so it's just one of those cases where uh if you can get over that aspect i find it to be an incredibly entertaining piece of junk food tv and a lot of it is streaming on hulu right now so, when I sit down to watch TV or a movie, I'm like, when I watch something that's new and interesting and vital, or when I watch an episode of Guy's Grocery Games, recently I've been watching Guy's Grocery Games. And it's a problem. It's a real problem. But it, as far as junk food TV goes, I'm enjoying it just fine. HD, you've watched lots of Chopped. Have you ever gone to this side of Food Network?
1: I haven't. I'm still just. On my chopped binges, and I tend to not really like a lot of other chopped cooking shows. They just are too intense and too, sometimes a little mean for me. Like especially, uh, what's it? Kitchen nightmares. I'm, I don't. I just like that it's all about sabotage and not about the food. So I haven't watched this yet, but um, maybe I'll check it out. Yeah,
2: it's definitely a positive show. It, it, it's. Is a competition show, but there is definitely a vibe of um, we're all here to have fun. Let's all say nice things. Let's all be friendly. And to the point where when somebody's on the show and they actually are like overly competitive or mean, it's actually stands out. It's like, whoa, this is not the show. What are you doing? (laughs) So it's actually it's more relaxing than you may think it is.
0: All right, uh, Chris. You have watched a a new movie. Wow, uh, this this is weird to talk about. Like there are movies; they're still a thing. Uh, you watched the Trial of the Chicago Seven. Tell me about this movie. This is Aaron Sorkin's new film, right?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm not going to talk too much about it just because I I don't, know, I don't really feel like it. <laughs> but
0: <laughs> but uh, my review is up
3: on SlashFilm.com today. I urge you all to read it. But um, it's it's good. Um, I still think. Aaron Sorkin great writer not a great director uh and you know Aaron Sorkin he has his problems uh, he has his pitfalls and uh, he does stumble into a few of them in this movie um yeah, he's very big on <sighs> he's very big on big moments and there are a lot of scenes where you feel like characters are delivering lines that Aaron Sorkin underlined in the screenplay, like a million times in like red marker to be like, this is an important speech, make sure it's an important scene. And that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's a, there's a sort of subtle way to do that. And Aaron Sorkin does not do subtle. Um, but what, what fixes this film or what's, what saves the film is the performances. Like uh, the, the cast is, is, is phenomenal across the board. Everyone here is really good. Uh Um, although there are a few exceptions. Uh, Jeremy Strong, who is usually a good actor. He's doing this, like he's, he's basically just doing a voice that makes him sound like Tommy Chong. And it's very distracting and it's even more distracting because the real person he's playing, Jerry Rubin did not sound like that. So I'm really not sure why he made that choice. I mean, the character is like a stoner and I'm guessing he just thought like all stoners sound like Cheech and Chong. I don't know. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's like, After I watched the film, I was like, did Jerry Rubin really sound like that? And I went and watched a bunch of like old interviews with him, and he did not sound like that at all. So I'm really not sure why Jeremy Strong made that decision. But
1: Jeremy Strong has been making weird choices in movies lately. Like I remember his character in The Gentleman was also just felt like very odd choices all around. So I don't really know. Maybe he's just having fun. I don't know. (laughs)
3: I mean, yeah, he, he you know his performance isn't bad. He you know he's he's clearly giving a good performance, but the voice is just really distracting to me. And uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is is good, but he has to do an American accent, and a lot of times his his real accent keeps slipping in. But you know these are like nitpicks. Like beyond that, the performances are are very good. So I would say you know watch this before the performances alone, because th- that's what makes it good and i i realized i said i didn't want to talk much about this but i already did so i'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> stop right now
0: no that's great all right so that's the trial of the chicago seven and that is available on netflix on uh october 16th is when that drops so uh i look forward to checking that one out um HG, you have also been watching some new movies what's going on
1: yeah i'm in the midst of new york Film festival coverage so i'm seeing a lot of movies um that have not yet had release dates some that some of them that do and uh, i'll give you an update on the ones that i've watched uh I watched On the Rocks, which is the new Sofia Coppola movie. It reunites her and Bill Murray for the first time since Lost in Translation. And it's a real frothy, sort of romp type film. It's a father daughter movie uh, starring Bill Murray and Rashida Jones, in which Rashida Jones' character, um, who is a com- an accomplished New York author, but is kind of finding herself in a rut lately, starts to suspect that her husband is cheating on her. And she enlists her father to sort of uh, give her advice. And he ends up taking her for a spin through New York City, trying to trail her husband and um, just kind of they just sort of wander around and go on various capers throughout the city. And it's fun. and, And mostly it's 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 an interesting film that comes out at this time because it was obviously filmed for COVID times. And it feels, because of its like current release, it feels very much like, maybe this was intentional, maybe it wasn't, but it feels very much like a, a love letter to the New York of the before times. And even then it feels like it exists in this strange, you know, kind of privileged bubble. It is a Sophia Coppola film after all. Um, but watching it, I just felt so nostalgic and sad for... For for like the just that this New York doesn't exactly exist anymore. I mean, it's not dead for sure, but um, it's uh, that was sort of the thing that hit me the most. Otherwise, it's an enjoyable film. It's much more casual and almost more lackadaisical than a Sofia Coppola Coppola film generally is. There isn't that crushing sense of ennui that's in a lot of her films. It's very light, um, but it's it's really fun, especially for Bill Murray's performance, who um, he kind of plays an exaggerated version of his sort of mythic persona as this strange Hollywood urban legend. And uh, he gets to peel back the layers of that a little and give a, a sort of melancholy um, twist to it. So that's On the Rocks. It's going to be coming to... Apple, actually soon. So I'm going to look up the date for that because I should have had that pulled up. <laughs> uh, it's coming to Apple TV plus on, uh, October 23rd, 2020.
0: Okay. Uh, real quick, before you move off that, you mentioned the ennui, and that is like the one word that I think of when I think of Sophia Coppola as a filmmaker. Um, you mentioned this is, this is not that this is a much more lighter thing. Um, I, I just wonder what you think about that, uh, transition out of that and and if if after watching this movie you would like to see more uh you know lightly toned movies from coppola or if you want if you prefer the the sort of ennui that she's more traditionally known for
1: i think i'd prefer the ennui because deprived of that it doesn't feel very much like a sofia coppola film it just kind of feels like i don't i don't i can't think of an exact filmmaker who would be but just it feels like it less ha- has less of her trademark on it. Um, it's still enjoyable, but uh, I would say that I I like when she's brooding and and sad and and uh, deconstructing the um, facets of femininity and and, and pa- the patriarchy and stuff. So I, I I'd say this is an enjoyable watch, um, but not one of Coppola's best or even most memorable films. But enjoyable.
0: All right. Uh, what else have you been watching?
1: I have been watching uh, The Human Voice. So this is Pedro Amaldivar's English language debut. It stars Tilda Swinton, and it is a adaptation of the John Cocteau play of the same name. It's a short film, so it's not his English language feature debut, but it is for sure another great entry into Amaldivar's, uh filmography, and Tilda Swinton just burns up the screen in this film. I. I just, I love Al in general. I think that his bold filmmaking, his bold colors, his bold emotions are always just so delightful to experience on screen. It's so cinematic. And he does so much with the 30 minutes here, uh, so much more so than like what many filmmakers are Uh, Have been able to achieve in you know two hours, so this is very much a maldivar to its fullest. It's very bright, vibrant, melodramatic, and it's all about this Atul's performance and um, that performative grief in a way. In that uh, her character uh, is basically on a long phone call with her former lover, uh, sort of going through a breakdown and talking about her relationship and meditating on love and grief and all those kind of things. And it is really amazing what Amal and Swinton can do with just her, some AirPods and a luxurious apartment. It's just a a really fantastic short film. might be one of my, probably is my favorite thing I've seen of the... Well, no, actually, there's another one that I will mention, but it's one of my favorite things I've seen out of New York Film Festival so far, and um, I only wish it was longer. I I really wish it um, was more than like just the half hour that we got, but it is a perfect little short film, and um, it was filmed during uh, COVID times, during like the um, with social distancing measures, and the way that Amalvar works that into uh, the film is just really wonderful to watch. He makes this sort of like this metatextual commentary on that performative type of brief. And uh, by making it clear that this apartment that she's sort of swanning about is built on a soundstage. And he shows the exterior of that, of that uh, apartment in this sort of gray industrial soundstage. And it's, it's really just great to watch. So that's the human voice, the Pedro Maldivar Tilda Swinton collaboration. It's fantastic, and I don't know if it'll be streaming anywhere soon. I think it was just picked up by Searchlight.
0: I I was just looking this up because I was like, this sounds fascinating. How the heck are the rest of us going to get a chance to see this? And evidently, like two days ago, Sony Pictures Classics picked it up, um, and it seems like they are going to be figuring out a release plan, and like, there's talk that this could end up competing in the Oscars for best live action short. Um, but I don't know about what that release plan is going to be because they just picked it up a couple days ago. So I think they're probably still figuring out a, a plan there. But um, hopefully it'll get released on one of the streaming services and we'll be able to check it out soon. Yeah,
1: hopefully. So the next thing I watched is a an Argentinian film called Isabella. It's directed by Matias uh, Pinero. And um, it is sort of a play on Shakespeare's Measure for Measure. It's about um, these... Aspiring actors as they audition for a play, um, for Measure for Measure. And it's told in this nonlinear fashion where you jump between their audition and things they describe in their audition. And there is that sort of thin uh, line between reality and, and fantasy that's always fun in these kind of festival movies. Um, but it's a little bit uh, opaque. In terms of its depictions of its characters and their thought processes and what they're going through, uh, it's probably not my probably my least favorite of, my, of what I've seen so far. But it's still a really fascinating experience and um, a fa- really interesting um, sort of examination of Shakespeare through the the characters and through the actresses who um, very much are reflections of Shakespeare's characters. So that is Isabella. And um, that is, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's streaming anywhere either. That's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just looked this one up. It says a 2021 theatrical release is being planned. So it sounds like theaters next year, uh, you know, <laughs> assuming that there are theaters next year.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Uh, the next thing I watched was my favorite thing, for sure. Oh, that I see at the festival, but also of the year. And that's Chloe Zhao's Nomadland. I was so, so excited to see this. It was, um, I think Chris reviewed it at the Toronto Film Festival, and I was just really excited to be able to watch it and, um, just see all the buzz and anticipation. There's already Oscar buzz around it, but that's not, you know, the reason that I wanted to see it. Um, and this is just a, a beautiful, beautiful slice of Americana, um, that just feels like a, um... A way of that is <laughs> that feels like it finds the beauty and the serenity in pain and loss and grief and in like the restless nomadic spirit that it depicts on screen. Frances McDormand plays a woman whose um, factory town gets completely shut up and she decides to pack up everything in her entire life and uh, drive west. And live in a, a van. And um, it's just a, such a really exquisite film that I adored every second. It made my heart swell and ache and all of those things that you want to happen when you react to a beautiful film. Um, I f- especially was reminded of the idea of um, this Japanese art called uh, kin. Hold on. It's called Kintsugi, and it's the mending of broken pottery with gold, which is meant to call attention to the cracks and the flaws in a formerly broken piece of pottery, and it, in the end, creates something stronger and more beautiful than what was there before, and I feel like that spoke so clearly to Nomadland and that it celebrates those those cracks, that grief, and in the end the composite is something much stronger and more beautiful than what was there previously. So I adored this film. Uh, Chris has spoken about it before and um, I don't know if there's anything you wanted to add.
3: Oh no, it's great. Um, <laughs> it's great. Uh, yeah. Th- there's like a shitty Hollywood version of this movie where it's like all about her character getting back on her feet and finding a jo- And like this. That's not what this movie is. And I was so I just found that so refreshing. Like it's 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 not like here's how she gets a house again. Like that's not what this movie is. And I thought that was so interesting and good. And yeah, this movie is fantastic. Yes.
1: So that's Nomadland. So
3: do
0: you have any idea when this one is coming out? Because I've I have not looked this one up, so I'm not sure.
1: Um, I I think this one was uh, picked up by Searchlight. December fourth. And- I'm sorry. Okay.
0: All right.
3: December fourth.
1: December fourth. There we go.
0: Cool. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I think all of us are really looking forward to this. So, uh, Nomad Land, put it on your radar if it's not there already. Um, HD, what else would you want? All right.
1: last thing to speak about for the New York Film Festival this week is Mangrove. Uh, this is the second film in Steve McQueen's small acts uh, series, his series of films that focus on London's West Indian community during the 1960s to 1980s. And there hasn't been a bad movie out of this yet. I've only seen two of them, but I absolutely adored Lovers Rock, which was just very much a vibe in one word. And Mangrove is much more traditionally a biographical film. It follows the Mangrove Nine, who in 1970 were put on trial for inciting riots after uh, going on peaceful protests against the police in their Notting Hill community. And um, it's such a It's a film that could have easily been just a the the riveting courtroom drama that it is in the second half of the film, but Steve McQueen creates something much fuller and much richer than that by depicting both the sides, both the pain and the injustice that the black community experiences, but also the joy and the love and the the safe haven that Mangrove, which is the restaurant at the center of this trial. provides for these people. And I think that it adds such a great point to the ongoing discussions there's, that, that's been going on about Black pain and how to depict that with nuance and sensitivity on screen. And I think that the counterpoint to that is to show Black joy. I'm not an expert by any means. This is just my impression and what I've I took away from Steve McQueen's film, but I really love Mangrove and um, this, the embargo for it breaks today. And by the time this podcast comes out, it should be broken. So <laughs> that's Mangrove. And you can check out my reviews for all these films, except for Isabella and Nomadland. I have not gotten one for Isabella out yet on Slash Film
0: and uh small acts which is the the mini series that steve mcqueen is is directing and mangrove is a part of is going to be coming to amazon prime video on november 20th so that's how the rest of us will be able to see this so uh all right one more thing ht
1: yes i rewatched labyrinth um which is uh, jim henson's Ooh, i forgot the year of this film 1980s 1986 film and uh i was watching it with my roommate and her boyfriend and they no, Rebecca, my roommate had seen it before, but her her boyfriend hadn't. And we decided to just put it on because we were craving a film with David Bowie and puppets. And it's great. I mean, it's on Amazon uh, video right now. It's, uh, It's free to stream if you have an Amazon Prime subscription. I don't know if I've talked about it before, but yeah, I love this film. I'm, I have very dear fond memories of it even watching it growing up on VHS and thinking what is this movie when I was like five years old because my aunt got it for me because uh, it's a puppet film and I was like why is there so much gyrating in this movie <laughs> but it's, it's a really wonderful and weird and imaginative uh, movie that um, definitely I feel like wouldn't be made today and uh, is uh feels very much like diving into Jim Henson's uh, imagination as well as David Bowie's, you know, aura. So uh, I I think this is a great film. You should revisit it if you haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, fun, A really fun deconstruction of Alice in Wonderland. And um, I, there's there's an essay to be written, I'm sure other people have written about it, but about how this is about sexual awakening for uh, Jennifer Connolly's character, in addition to many of the people who watched this movie and had crushes on David Bowie. But... <laughs> That's that's another conversation. Anyways, Labyrinth streaming on Amazon, great movie.
0: All right, shout out to Sir Didymus as well. That guy's a baller. Uh, all right, Brad, what have you been watching?
4: Just one extra thing. Um, I, I've still been on a documentary kick for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. Maybe there's just so many of them I haven't seen. But this is one I've been intending to watch for a long time, and I kind of forgot about it for a little while. Uh, it came back out. It came out in 2017, and it was something I was really excited about. Um, because it's it's about uh, the Dana Carvey show. It's called Too Funny to Fail, uh, The Life and Death of the Dana Carvey Show. Uh, it's a Hulu original documentary, and um, it's about, uh, like I said, the Dana Carvey Show, which is a short-lived, primetime sketch comedy show that aired on NBC not long after Dana Carvey left Saturday Night Live. And it famously lasted only a single season, and they didn't even get to air their final episode because it was just so weird and wild, and they had such a battle with executives about the content on primetime and how they had were losing so many viewers from their home improvement lead in uh that it was just all over entertainment news and it was just one, one of those things and what's even crazier about this for people who don't know is that the uh team behind the dana carvey show is full of some of like the best names uh in comedy that have stuck around for a while and the, the team they have besides dana carvey dana carvey was able to bring robert Smigel with him from Saturday Night Live, and they essentially sparked uh, Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert's careers after they were part of Second City. This was even before they were on The Daily Show. And then they also had Charlie Kaufman, uh, who we all know as you know the filmmaker behind Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and Anomalisa, uh, Robert Carlock, the creator and executive producer of 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And to a lesser extent, and it's kind of awkward to see this um, since it, the documentary was made before the allegations around him came about but louis ck was also part of this team and so the documentary dives into the genesis of the show their fight with executives their uh, um while their show was on and just all of this these great behind the scenes stories and it's also really really funny too because these are all hilarious people reflecting on the show that is considered to be such an epic failure um and even smigel like even though he like he laughs about certain things you can tell that he feels you know almost uh, not almost like really sad still that this was something that didn't work out because it was something they were all extremely proud of and very excited about and feels like it was just ahead of its time because it came at a time when ABC had just been taken over by Disney, which did not help them by any means. And it was just too weird for the kind of comedy that was popular during this period uh, in the, the, the mid 90s. And I think if Dana Carvey show came around today, it would be a huge hit and everyone would have loved it, but it just came at at the wrong time. Um, So, yeah, if you want to watch that find out more about it, it, it's on Hulu and you can you can get the entire short for season uh, or only season run of the Dana Carvey show on DVD.
0: Um, Brad, I'm just curious, I have not seen the Dana Carvey show. And I also have not seen the Ben Stiller show. But it, uh, the way you described that, and like, you know, the the great writing staff and all that kind of stuff the the talented people who went on to bigger and better things, it sort of reminded me of the Ben Stiller show, which aired, uh, what, five years or something before the Dana Carvey show, I was just curious if you if you had seen uh, the Penn Stiller show and like how you would compare those two shows. Cause I sort of like missed that whole thing. <laughs> I guess I was too young and I just never went back, you know, when I was an adult.
4: Yeah. I've, I've seen um, some of the Ben Stiller show. I haven't seen all of, it. I do have it on DVD. I just haven't taken the time to watch everything on it yet, but yeah, it's, it's a very similar thing. I think that Ben Stiller skewed a little bit more towards like kids in the hall kind of stuff. Whereas Dan- the Dana Carvey show felt like it was like an alternate universe kind of Saturday night live in a way. Um, mm. but yeah, bo- both, both are, are, have like the a same kind of comedic approach and, and yeah, they, they, I, I would love to see a documentary on the Ben Stiller show too. Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's get into what we've been eating. Brad, what crazy things have you been eating this week? Wacky Brad's food. Um, <laughs> so there's a new, uh, variant of Skittles, Skittles smoothies. Uh, that is out there now that you can find. I found mine at uh, Walgreens, but I think you can get it pretty much anywhere where they have like the candy set up by the front of the registers and stuff. And so it's all smoothie-inspired flavors. They they have peach guava, blueberry, strawberry, banana, mango, and raspberry. Um, and they're definitely distinctly uh, different from regular Skittles, but they all kind of have like almost like a vaguely bubblegum flavor to them um, which I guess is kind of like what is supposed to represent you know the smoothie part of it because otherwise you know skittles just just all, all kind of like fruity pebbles and fruit loops just taste vaguely fruity and um, you know in general uh, but they're, they're still pretty good I, I usually like the the varied flavors of skittles better than regular skittles just because I think all those skittles taste the same for the most part but maybe mm. maybe that's just me um, and so then so I'm not a candy corn person at all. Whenever candy corn comes around on Halloween, like keep it away from me. It's gross. Like I've been, I've been tricked too many times, thinking, oh, you know what? Maybe candy corn will be good this time. It's, it's never good. It's always just chunks of plastic sugar. Um, but I was curious enough to try um, sour haunted tropics candy corn from Brock's because it's it's fruit flavors uh, and it's a sour candy, and I was interested to see if it actually tasted anything like candy corn with like a fruit flavor. And thankfully it doesn't, it just, it tastes just like a hard, uh, chewable fruity candy. Uh, and so it comes with flavors like watermelon and and kiwi and and stuff like that. Um, and it's, it's pretty good. It's not as sour as like a Sour Patch Kids or something like that. There's just a a small coating on the, the candy corn shape of it, which is all, you know, bright, the fruit colors, um, that come with it. So, uh, yeah, if you don't like candy corn, but you like sour fruit flavored candy, these haunted tropics candy corn are uh, pretty good. And they're, I got this at Walgreens as well. And they're, they're probably lying around just the candy out with all the rest of the Halloween candy.
0: Is it the same consistency, like same texture as regular candy corn? Yeah, it is. It is for sure. Okay. All right. I was wondering if it was like a hard,
4: like a hard shell kind of (laughs) thing. Because that's typically what happens with like sour candies, right? Yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, it's just like uh, candy corn as far as the texture. Okay. Uh, And so then I found, uh, I didn't find these actually. My girlfriend bought um, some stuff like uh, she's from Zimbabwe and obviously there they have tons of different... Uh, snacks and and candy and stuff like that, and she found a website that has had some of her favorite chips that she would eat when she used to live there, and so she just got a, a deliver of them recently, and she had me try them, and so they they have a brand there called Simba Chips, and the, the mascot is a, a lion wearing a crown, and the the flavor that she loves so much is uh, M- Mrs. HS Ball's Chutney Flavored Potato Chips. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. What a what a mouthful. It is. It is a mouthful. Um. But they're really really good. So they have um. This like vaguely barbecue uh, flavor to them. It's, it's it's smoky and tangy, but then it also kind of tastes like steak sauce. Um, and then there's also there, there's a, just a tiny bit of sweetness to it be, um, because, because of the, the, the chutney. So, uh, yeah, they, they're pretty good. I, w- I wish that they were easier to get a hold of so that we could get more of them because uh, you can only get them in, like, these smaller bags probably because other countries don't snack as much as we do. Um, but it was cool to try uh, these kinds of things. So I'm hoping that uh, she might be able to find some more uh, flavors and other things like that online that I can try out just to get a vibe for the kind of stuff that they have uh, back in her hometown.
0: Very cool. So those are Simba chips. If anybody's interested in, in trying them, send us an email. Let us know what you think about them. Uh- yeah, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more about some of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. This podcast is published uh, three times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time.
2: Ben? Yes. Yes, Jacob. Well, since Peter isn't here, I think I'm going to save Louis A. Safian's Book of Insults. for <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> I heard about this other whippersnapper, this young up-and-comer. Known for his turns of phrase as well, I think we can try sampling him and see if he works as well as Louis A. Safian. Oh, uh, all right. I, dare I ask who you're talking about? Oh, uh, this guy named William Shakespeare. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, <clears throat> Ben. Methinks thou art a general offense, and every man should beat thee.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, you know, I'll take it. Fair enough,
2: Chris. I must tell you, friendly in your ear, sell when you can. You are not for all markets.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah,
4: okay
2: brad i'll beat thee but i would infect my hands oh no ht a most notable coward an infinite and endless liar an hourly promise breaker the owner of no one good quality
1: wow that one's really <laughs> rough
2: <laughs> yeah man
3: went hard oh, man. that was the meanest one
2: uh <laughs> peter's not here so uh Away, you starveling, you elfkin, you dried neat's tongue, bull's pizzle, you stockfish.
1: I want to be an elfkin. <laughs>